Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the prophets, and we here we have for you the discussion of the second portion of Daniel chapter 9, which is verses 20 through 27, and we have a discussion of the prophecy and the difficult passage of the 70 weeks. We do have some upcoming events that you may be interested in that are linked in the show notes. On August 28th, we will be in Houston, Texas for a regional course on how to read the Bible. September 17th and 18th, we will be in Wichita, Kansas for a course on what is creation. We also have a couple of Theopolis online workshops coming up, one on the book of Judges with James B. John and James Jordan, and another on the Maker versus the Takers with Jerry Boyer. We have links to those courses in the show notes as well. We really hope that you enjoyed this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Daniel chapter 9. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Jeff Myers, at the time of our recording, is uh, at a conference in Huntsville, Alabama, and will rejoin us in the next set of episodes we trust. Brian Motes, as always, is uh, in the background. He's recording everything, and we'll smooth everything out for uh, for you to listen to without too much wincing or uh, awkward pauses going on in the midst of our discussions. We're in the middle of a large series of podcasts on prophetic literature. We did some introductory podcasts about prophecy in general. We went through the book of Jonah over the course of about a month. And for the last several months, we've been in the book of Daniel. And uh, we're now in Daniel 9. In the last episode, we looked at the first part of Daniel 9. Uh, Daniel 9 is uh, one of the series of visions that, da- that occupy the last part of the book of Daniel, where uh, Daniel is... Uh, seeing visions that largely pertain to the future of Israel. He sees some general visions about the the future of uh, of ancient empires, but he's particularly seeing visions about the future of Israel. Uh, and in chapter 9 in particular, as we saw last week, that he begins this long prayer. He's been studying the book or books or the letters of Jeremiah, uh, and he sees that the 70-year period that Jeremiah had prophesied about has come to an end. Uh, the Babylonian Empire is over, and so it's time for Israel to be released from exile. That's what the Lord has promised. And so Daniel begins this impassioned prayer, uh, asking the Lord for to forgive Israel, appealing to the Lord's uh, own reputation because of Israel's condition, because the condition of Jerusalem and because the people are scattered. The Lord's own name is being reproached among the Gentiles. And so he appeals to the Lord to forgive and to restore the people and to restore the city. Uh, as a public demonstration of the Lord's faithfulness to his people and a public demonstration of his faithfulness to his word. That occupies the first 19 verses of Daniel 9. And in this episode, we're going to start in verse 20 and go through verse 27, uh, the latter part. This, Although these are two distinct things, you have the prayer and then the appearance of the angel Gabriel and, and a vision, they're linked in a number of ways. You have uh, the linkages we talked about in the last episode of the number there's the 70 years that uh, Daniel has sees in the books of Jeremiah, and that's the prophecy that ends the chapter is about a 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years. Uh, that brings up a kind of sabbatical theme that unites the beginning of the chapter with the end of the chapter. Uh, and as we also talked about, it's not just a sabbatical theme, but uh, cycles of sab- Sabbath years and Jubilee that are implied by, by the numbers. There's also this interesting sequence. Uh, we, we commented last time on the fact that 
Daniel is looking at the written books or letters of Jeremiah. And then based on what's written, based on what the Lord has revealed, he's offering these prayers. So there's this movement from book to prayer. And then what's interesting in this last half, the last part of the chapter is that that prayer opens up an encounter with an angel, which leads to further revelation. So Daniel prays over the book or prays in response to the book and then receives further revelation as a result of his prayer. That sequence is uh, an interesting one and one we should uh, take to heart as we're pouring over the books of the prophets ourselves as we're trying to understand the scriptures. Uh, They should provoke prayer in us and we should expect not an angelic visitation, but we should expect as we uh, pour over the books and immerse ourselves in the books and do that prayerfully, that the Lord is going to open up new, uh, new insights and new revelations as we as we go through the last part of the chapter. Verses, uh, uh, well, I should I should say to the, the yeah the last part of the chapter is the seventy weeks prophecy. That's integrated into uh, it's a response to the prayer. It's a very direct response to the prayer. Daniel has been praying for the condition of Jerusalem, which is still in ruins after Nebuchadnezzar's conquest. And he's praying for the condition of the people because the city is in ruins because the people are have sinned and they're guilty and they need to be forgiven. Uh, and the 70 weeks prophecy is a direct response to that. As verse 24 indicates, these 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your city. Those are the two things that Daniel's been praying about. And there's this direct answer to the things that he's concerned about. The Lord is going to forgive the people. He's going to restore the city. And that's what uh, these this uh, final prophecy is about. It's a really dense and uh, difficult prophecy, uh, opaque in a lot of ways. We're going to find out as we start going through the last part of the chapter that trying to figure out the beginning and end of the sequence of 70 weeks is that's controversial. Where does it begin? How, we to end? Who, how do we identify the different characters that are mentioned in the course of the prophecy? Even the punctuation at certain points is controversial and has a significant effect on how we read the prophecy. So there are a lot of things that are uh, that are controversial and contested about the 70 weeks prophecy. But uh, we've decided we're just going to solve everything in the next uh, 40 minutes or so. And uh, there will be no more questions ever again from anybody about the 70 weeks of Daniel because we will have resolved things. The fact that um, Gabriel comes at the time of the evening sacrifice maybe invites questions about the relationship between Daniel's prayer and the offering of sacrifice. We have something of this principle in Psalm 141, 1-2, where we talk about, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice, that prayer itself serves a sort of sacrificial purpose. And on the other hand, sacrifice is a sort of enacted prayer. There is, I mean, what, Daniel is seeking here is for um, something to deal with the sin of the people to some sort of cleansing and um, atonement to occur, which is part of what the answer he gets relates to. But his action in prayer does seem to have this sort of sacrificial connection just by virtue of its time and the time that... um, Gabriel visits him in response to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in confirmation of that, uh, Acts 10 talks about the prayers of Cornelius as arising as tribute or as an offering before the Lord. Uh, same kind of idea.
Right, and, and that's presumably something the Jewish people would have had to think about during all this time in a dispersed environment. They would presumably have wanted to kind of do something to acknowledge the feasts and the, the keeping of various things in the law, but obviously couldn't offer sacrifices. And so you wonder if this reflects sort of something, even something similar to what's done in Judaism today, but some sort of um, uh, association with types of prayer and types of sacrifice or, or, or something like that. Right. So you have associations that are already in the Hebrew Bible, but you have associations that develop during the during the intertestamental period between sacrifice and prayer and and also other kinds of other kinds of practices. I mean, uh, I think Cornelius's almsgiving is also seen as a kind of sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Hmm. Uh, I think the, the specific thing in verse twenty one is uh, it's the evening tribute, isn't it? In Minka, I think. Which, if the temple were functioning properly, there would be an evening ascension offering, Olah, and that would be accompanied, as Numbers 28 and 29 indicate, and be accompanied by a tribute offering. And the tribute offering is a, the part that's offered on the altar is described as a memorial. There's a handful of the, of the, uh, of the flour and the oil and all the incense of the tribute offering that's placed on, onto the uh, animal offering. And that, that, that memorial ascends as a, as a tribute before the Lord. But I think that memorial idea is, is probably at work here too, that the Daniel's prayers arise as a memorial before the Lord. They rise as a kind of aid to memory or they call the Lord's, he's calling the Lord to remember Jerusalem and Judah and to remember and forgive and to restore. Uh, and uh, and arises as a, his prayers arise as a memorial tribute offering in, in that specific sense. I wonder if there's something to think about here in terms of the link between um, marking time and sacrifice. So already in this, uh, in the book of Daniel, we've thought about that link. The two thousand three hundred days are connected with the removal of the, the the tamid, this kind of daily sacrifice, this daily reminder before the Lord. And um, it, it strikes me as very significant that we've actually got this timed seventy week period that bridges the really the old and, and the new testament um something i was struck by as we were going through um a series on genealogies it seems like forever ago now but um is is the fact that you are given the age of everyone from adam through to moses so you can set out this t- timeline and you can kind of count the exact days um from Adam to the time of the Exodus. So that is timed um, by the chronologized by human lives, um, essentially. Then we've got a period of 480 years from the time of the Exodus to the construction of Solomon's temple. And Solomon's inauguration kind of sets off a, a sort of calendar of its own in the throughout kings then we've got all the kings regnal years and so their rise and fall kind of marks time but all that now threatens to break down in the days of jeremiah and um daniel because the temple um isn't anymore the the biblical record is soon going to fall out of reckoning over the intertestamental years and there aren't kings as such in jerusalem and so we have in their place um this 70 week period which continues that that sort of time that ability to count years all the way up until the time of, of the new testament and thinking about it that that feels significant to me mm. what do we make of the character of gabriel who here is described as 
being one that he had seen in the vision at the first, presumably in chapter seven, we're not given his name there, but now we are. And then he's mentioned in chapter eight in the second vision. And now in this vision, and it seems he's also present in the fourth vision that follows. He generally serves the purpose of interpreting the visions and helping Daniel to understand things. How are we to understand the role that he is playing beyond that? Well, think of analogies with other prophets. Think of Zechariah in particular, uh, where you have certain scenes in Zechariah's night visions where Zechariah has, see, he sees something, but then he has to inquire of somebody standing by, some kind of interpreting angel standing by who's going to interpret it. John has a similar kind of interaction with uh, certain of the angels in the book of Revelation. Uh, that's I'm just giving further examples of what you said uh, that uh, these are these are interpreting beings. One of the, one of the things that's uh, may may highlight something else is just the name uh, Gabriel, which is uh, is a connotation of kind of a, a kind of a, a military military connotation almost. Gabor is a mighty man of valor. Uh, El is my Gabor, or uh, El, El is yeah, El is my warrior. El is my mighty man. Something like that which may indicate something more than just an interpreter, but something like a protector or somebody who's engaged in some kind of warfare on behalf of Daniel or behalf of Israel. That, that as we'll see in chapters 10, 11, there's, there's more indication of that kind of dimension to it. Perhaps that fits. I mean, one of the odd things in verse 21, one of the puzzles, grammatical puzzles, is to understand the reference to weariness. Gabriel, whom he'd seen in the vision previously, came to me in great and extreme weariness. Uh, my uh, New American Standard Bible removes the ambiguity by inserting the word my. So Daniel's the one who's weary. But that's not what the text says. The, the Hebrew says, he came to me in, in extreme weariness. That might be Daniel's extreme weariness, but it might also be Gabriel's, which would be a kind of interesting uh, twist that they, uh, Dan, uh, Gabriel himself is somehow uh, ex- exerting energy on behalf of Daniel. So there, that suggests something more than just an interpreter, but I don't I don't know what exactly it, it suggests. One, one thing we could think about is in the next chapter, there is um, an angelic visitor who has been kind of occupied with the Prince of Prince of Persia for um, a, a certain amount of time. And it, it does feel in the text as if angels aren't these uh, omnipotent beings, um, you know, that they, they can... They have to struggle with other principalities, and the, the idea of Gabriel being weary here doesn't doesn't strike me as problematic particularly. Um, in terms of his role more generally, I, I wonder if your comment, um, Peter, about the um, the progression from book to prayer to angelic appearance is helpful. Insofar as Daniel has done what he can do, he's studied the text he's prayed about it he's thought about it and now i guess he's at the limits of his human abilities and understanding to work out what that means for him and it it's at that point then that gabriel comes and um moves things on i guess and gives him further revelation it's interesting that when daniel first encounters gabriel he's the one that approaches gabriel to ask for interpretation he's just one of the people standing by at that point on the second occasion um, Gabriel, he hears Gabriel being sent to him. On this occasion, Gabriel comes to him 
and then on the next occasion um again it's gabriel approaches him um and it seems there's some sort of the relationship between Dan- daniel and gabriel is initiated by daniel surprisingly mm. Mm. put in mind too of uh, revelation 8 uh this is the beginning of verse 3 Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up uh, before God out of the angel's hand. The angel took the censer. He filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth and there followed peals of thunder and sounds of flashes of lightning. So you have an an angel here who is functioning as a mediator of prayer. Um, The prayers are carried up toward God uh, by the by the uh, angel priest who's presiding at this golden altar. And I, I wonder if they were to understand something similar for Gabriel here, that he's been a mediator of sorts in bringing the petitions that Daniel's prayed. He's brought them before the Lord. Uh, he's the one who brings the, brings the prayer at the time of the evening tribute, the memorial. Uh, and then he's also the one who, in, in Revelation 8, the Angel has kind of a twofold movement. He goes, he brings the prayers up, but then he also takes the censer and he casts down coals that uh, shake things up on the earth. So it seems like you have a potentially you have a similar kind of thing. Daniel is a, Gabriel rather is assisting Daniel in prayer and then uh, is uh, coming to Daniel in the aftermath and giving him this ad- additional revelation. Hmm. And Gabriel's reappearance, I guess, at the start of the New Testament, is going to be the things that think, thing that gets things moving in fulfilment of Daniel's prophecy on on the other side of the intertestamental years. Right. Yeah, I think the fact that it's Gabriel who makes the uh, announcements at the book of in the, at the beginning of uh, Luke. Yeah, that's an indication that the the sealed book of Daniel is beginning to be unsealed. The things that the things that Gabriel had uh, uh, had. Uh, disclosed to Daniel are about to be unveiled and uh, and come to fulfillment. Just the fact that Gabriel is the one to bring that news is a, is a sign, is a, it linking it to, back to Daniel. Hmm. Uh, it looks like verse 23 looks to me like Daniel's prayer, uh, as, soon as, as soon as Daniel begins to pray, that uh, the command is issued for Gabriel to go to him. Daniel is praying on behalf of a uh, of a ruined Jerusalem. Uh, it's a subject of shame and reproach. Daniel himself is highly esteemed and honored before God. And it looks like as soon as Daniel begins to pray, the decision is made to, for Gabriel to go and, and disclose this further vision to him. Is, is that how you understand at the beginning of your supplications in verse 23, that Daniel is so favored before God that uh, his his prayer is, is immediately, that the Lord immediately responds to begins speaking? That that's how I read it. Yeah, yep. yeah. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we should we should plunge into the seventy weeks uh, portion of the of the chapter, which is going to be the more 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 tangled portion of the chapter. Um, let me start just with uh, this uh, suggestion. Uh, verse twenty four, I take to be just a general statement about the accomplishments of the seventy weeks. 70 weeks refers to 70 weeks of years, 70 times seven, a 490 year period, whether that's a literal period or some kind of symbol of fullness or full sub, a fully sabbatical year. 
Those have been decreed to your people and your holy city. I already mentioned that link between the people and the city in the prayer. And then the list of things that come after that are the list of things that are going to be accomplished in the course of the 70 weeks. Uh, The transgression is going to be sealed up or completed. Uh, Sin is going to be finished. Atonement will be made. The people are going to be redeemed. They're going to be forgiven. And then the city is going to be restored. Everlasting righteousness, vision, and prophecy are going to be fulfilled. And the anointing of the most holy is going to be accomplished. So I take verse 24 as a summary statement of something that's going to happen over the course of the whole 70 weeks. And then beginning verse 20, verse 25, we begin to break it down into different segments. And uh, that means that from verse 25 on, there's some overlap with what verse 24 uh, records. Because verse 24 is a summary statement that includes things that are going to be touched on in the following, in the following verses. Does that fit with the way you're reading the prophecy? I think so. It fits with how I'm reading it. Yeah, I mean, an interesting corollary of it is that the prophecy kind of is, it feels slightly anticlimactic in that because all the good things it's going to achieve are stacked up front in verse 24, it just ends with, like, you know, judgment being poured out on this decreed one and apparently a, a destroyed temple, which is just feels, it gives the chapter a slightly strange shape, doesn't it? It's almost as if the chapter starts with the temple in ruins and ends with the temple in ruins as well. Yes. I mean, the, the the very last phrase is complete destruction poured out on the one who makes desolate. So there's, there is desolation that's coming at the end of the chapter. My, my summary of those uh, phrases in verse 24, uh, does that, is, is that, is that how you understand those? It's, it's talking about the kind of the fulfillment of Daniel's prayer that God is going to deal with their sins, the transgressions, He's going to restore righteousness. I guess the one part that seems uh, that would be more controversial is the very last phrase, the last of the six phrases, which, phrases, which is to anoint the most holy. That's a, a Kodesh Kodeshim, which could be, I mean, there are many things that are designated as most holy in, uh, the, in the law. There are uh, obviously the most holy place, but there's also most holy food that's associated with the most holy place. There are most holy objects. Um so the, the phrase by itself can refer to a number of different things. And I think the controversy is whether that's talking about the restoration of a sanctuary as the most holy place or a person. Uh, and the argument for saying that it's a person would be the repetition of the anointing phrase in verses 25 and 26, both of which refer to Mashiach, a Messiah. But it, um, other than other than that last phrase, which we can come back to, do the, does the do you agree that in general, verse 24 is saying, within the 70-week period, within these 70 weeks of years, the forgiveness of sins is going to be, uh, Israel is going to receive forgiveness, they're going to be atoned for, and righteousness is going to come in in fulfillment of all prophecy. Is that a summary of what, what's being said there? Yes. I, I mean, um, for me, the, the term the transgression is one mm. of the few um one of the few things actually in the, in the whole prophecy to, to have the article in front of it and mm. it's been used in chapter eight in um uh in reference to antiochus's um well even if you don't think it's antiochus's then um the the transgression of of um israel's temple and the making desolate of the sanctuary and, and so on and so mm. i would um i would wonder if the finishing of, the, of that transgression has to do with the um uh 
yeah, the, the ending of some sort of desolation of the temple. Mm, mm, interesting, right? Verse 25 is one place where we have, every verse has, has lots of questions attached to it, but verse 25 particularly has questions attached to it. One of them has to do with the identifying the decree or the word that's given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Is that the decree of Cyrus, uh, which is the way that I have uh, I have taken it, uh, or is it some further decree? There are a number of decrees that are uh, given in the book of Ezra that um, reiterate the decree of Cyrus. When when there's opposition to the rebuilding of the temple and the city, the people of the land are trying to get it to stop, and so the Persian kings send further decrees to uh, reinforce the original decree of Cyrus. Uh, and then there's an, another authorization of Ezra, the book of Ezra, the first six chapters, Ezra does not appear. And then he, he comes in chapter seven, authorized by the Persian kings to go and restore the people and to teach the law. The temple is already in existence by that point. It's already been restored, but Ezra is going to be sent back. And then the city of Jerusalem is going to be restored, of course, in the, in the book of Nehemiah. So is that the decree of Cyrus or is that one of these subsequent decrees? Uh, and then another question is the basically the punctuation of the next clause. So from the issuing of whatever decree this is to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And the question is has to do with where you put the pause at the end of that clause. Uh, is it saying that from the time of the issuing of the decree, there will be a seven-week period and then a 62-week period, and then the Messiah will appear? Or is it saying the Messiah will appear after the 70 weeks and then 62 weeks goes with what follows? That is, it'll be rebuilt. Uh, the city will be completely built after 62 weeks or in a 62-week period. So the question is whether you break at the end of the phrase seven weeks or at the end of the phrase, uh, end of 62 weeks. I'll just put my cards on the table. Verse 25, I think the decree is the decree of Cyrus and that the punctuation should be that from that time, from the decree of Cyrus until the Messiah comes, and I take that to be the, the Messiah, till Messiah the Prince comes, there will be two periods, one period, a seven-week period, that's 49 years, and then a 62-week period, which is, you can calculate that on your own. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so it's those combined seven plus 62 weeks that makes up the full time between the decree of Cyrus and the coming of the Messiah. That's what I think. Part of the question is, what dates do we um, connect these things with? And is this a literal period of 490 years? Or are we going to see some of these parts as literal, some as non-literal? And or are we going to see all of it as non-literal? I think another thing would be, for instance, the way that we date the books of Ezra and Nehemiah relative to the return i mean I, t I take it that all of us are going to want to have the fall of the temple in ad 70 included in this um uh included in, in, in this prophecy um i mean pretty much everyone doesn't un unless you sort of take the uh maccabean view which i don't think any of us do um and if that's so then none of us are going to be able to accommodate the going forth of this word to the fall of the temple within just a, a straight literal 490 years so I, I guess that's probably one thing to say up front isn't it um my own view of the 
weeks and the princes and, and so forth for, for whatever it's worth is um, I take there to be reference to two messianic figures here. Um, the first I take to be the anointed one, comma, a prince, so just Mashiach and Nagid, like in apposition. Um, the second I take to be um, Jesus, the anointed one in um, verse 26, and I take him to be referred to separately as an anointed one and then later as a prince towards the end of verse 26 because it refers to his coming um, initially when he's rejected, when he's anointed by God but not sort of accepted by his people, as it were, and then later as a, as a prince, um, as a time when he returns in glory and, and does have political rule and and dominion. So, um, I mean, that, that may be a, a difference between us in terms of the treatment of the anointed ones. Were you thinking of timescale in terms of Cyrus? Um, I was saying none of us are going to fit the whole thing into a 490-year period. I mean, one thing to note is that there is a a jubilee um, straight up front. The first week of years is um, 49 years, which is the jubilee within the larger cycle. Hmm. I mean, one thing we might want to consider is however we identify this word to restore and build Jerusalem, why... Why mention it anyway? I mean, why why is it significant to what to what follows? I mean, my suspicion is that this word, which I mean, I, I take to be um, to concern Ezra's return into four fifty eight BC, but whatever it is, it feels to me that it's saying Jerusalem will once again be the controller of her own destiny to some extent the the idea of um restoring a city very often um in the old testament has the idea of restoring its independence you know it's been taken over by some foreign policy and uh, some foreign power and now it's got autonomy again and so I, I kind of take its restoration to be important because jerusalem is now responsible for her own affairs and it's in that state that she is going to reject her messiah and so the the blame is going to fall upon her shoulders for that. It's not going to be because of Babylon or because of Rome or because of um, some other thing. And I, I take that to be why it's actually mentioned in, in the first place. It's, it's not some arbitrary event. I think going back to your original uh, comments, James, that uh, you said uh, we all want to find AD 70 here. Well, of course. I mean, we want to find AD 70 everywhere so of course we're going to try to find it here as, as <laughs> along with everywhere else um so I'm, and i'm thinking i'm assuming you're talking about the end of verse 26 uh its end will come with a flood right. even to the end there will be war desolations are determined so yeah i, I agree with that uh, you're right about the uh, the chronological issue uh if you take this decree to be the decree of cyrus I mean, there, there are commentators like a Calvin, I think, talks about, he suggests that there's some flaw in, in Persian chronology. I don't know anything about Persian chronology, but the consensus seems that there's no way to find, you'd have to find like 80 extra years. And uh, some ancient chronologies are are off uh, enough to, to find that kind of wiggle room. Uh, 
uh, it seems like that's not possible with the Persian chronologies. So the 490 years doesn't cover the entire period literally. And that's the, the problem there for taking this as the decree of Cyrus is, uh, is made worse by the fact that uh, in my understanding of the chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah, the seven weeks does cover uh, the period from Cyrus's decree to the rebuilding of the city. Um, I know that that's a controversial uh, chronology. It's it's squishing together Ezra and Nehemiah in a way that a lot of contemporary uh, chronologists and commentators don't. Um, but I, uh, Jim Jim Jordan has some good essays on the um, chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah, and he argues that it's all taking place within about a fifty year period. So if if that's the case, the first seven weeks are literal. Then the six, next, second week, sixty two weeks would have to be just a symbolic number, uh, which is, uh, that's that's awkward to, to move from literal to symbolic. And then if you take verse 27, the last week, as we're talking about the uh, 70th week, that more or less fits with literal chronology. Jesus, after a period of three, three and a half years, roughly, is cut off. Then it's another several years before the stoning of Stephen. That's often seen as the... Uh, as the kind of the beginning of the abomination of uh, of uh, uh, destroying the church and and laying hands on on the saints, so uh, yeah, by by the interpretation that I'm suggesting, you have a, a more or less literal seven week period, a symbolic sixty two week period, and then a literal one week period at the end, the seventieth week. Uh, you can make some uh, make some headway uh, on that by suggesting that there's a the, there is a, a kind of delay. Uh, there is a delay. The 62 weeks would end sometime in the around 50 BC. And there's a period of time that's uh, open within this prophecy until the Messiah comes. That doesn't, that's not a, that's not a perfect kind of um, interpretation, but it fits with other kinds of possibilities of Jesus talks about the promise of his coming and delays and people becoming unfaithful in the midst of the delay, the servants beginning to mis uh, people beginning to mistreat the servants in the, in the time of the delay. So there's uh, possibly we could uh, find some wiggle room there, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I think I'm forced to take the 62 weeks, just a symbolic number and the whole number as uh, the number as a whole is a symbolic number that generally fits the 530 some year period between the decree of Cyrus and the end it's not satisfying for those reasons, but um, I, I, I think, I think I have other reasons for taking the, taking the position that I'm suggesting. I mean, a, another fly in the ointment and um, I'm not trying to make out that my position is without problem because it, it's not, but uh, a fly in the ointment with that view is that you actually have the 70 weeks. If you can associate them with Stephen in some way, um, concluding before AD 70 as, as well, don't you? Yeah. Right. So yes, you do, and that yeah that that would be, that is another fly in the ointment because then you have verse twenty six moving uh, well beyond the seventy weeks. Um, you're moving into the into the apost- end of the apostolic era with the destruction of Jerusalem in verse twenty six, uh, and then you're moving back to the seventieth week in verse twenty seven. So you you do have that that difficulty too. I guess the a couple of things that make me skeptical about the alternatives is. Daniel, if you put this in context of Daniel 9, Daniel's praying at the end of the 70 years. He knows that Babylon has been taken over by the Persians. This is the time when 
the restoration should take place, it seems like the natural response to that is that there will be a decree of release to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And the one that takes place at the end of the 70 years is Cyrus's decree. So in the context of Daniel 9, that seems to be the most natural kind of connection. And then I'm skeptical about the, I think you do have to kind of double the Messiah. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you, do have to, uh, you do have to say that there are two anointed ones in verses 25 and 26. Uh, otherwise, you're talking about uh, a Messiah who appears after seven weeks and then a Messiah who is killed after 62 weeks, which is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, uh, who is cut off after 62 weeks. That's a, that's a large gap in the existence of the Messiah. So I'm, I'm skeptical, uh, but I'm skeptical about the, the doubling. You can say in some generic way that Nehemiah, Nehemiah is an anointed one. He's a, he's a designated one. It doesn't seem like he really fits, fits the bill as an anointed one, which is typically a, priestly or kingly figure. So I think that designating Nehemiah that way and then also d- seeing two different messiahs in, in subsequent verses seems like a strain to me. Alistair's going to cut through and resolve that. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> Let me know if you need help, guys. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we always forget about Brian. Brian's back there with the anthem. <laughs> he never tells us. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Uh, I believe I don't know if this is still your position, James, but I know that uh, in your paper on Daniel nine, you uh, not only distinguish the messiahs in verses twenty five and twenty six, but then uh, the he of verse twenty seven is uh, is a different character yet, and you take that as a kind of antichrist, anti god character, linking him with the the horn of chapter eight and uh, the uh, um, you know, Antiochus. He's not he's not Antiochus, but he's a figure like that who's going to bring desolation on the city, the rebuilt city uh, and put a stop to sacrifice. So, and, and you're, are you seeing that as the 70th week? Is that a, with a large gap between the 69 weeks and the 70th week? Or are you seeing verse 27 as completely outside of the 70 week? Um, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in, in the gap, um, the, the gap theory, I, I suppose. <laughs> um, uh, at the start of um James Jordan's commentary on um, uh, on Daniel. He says there are some interpreters who um, get fed up trying to fit the details of the prophecies into history and just toss the whole lot into a big box marked "end times." And um, that that's my approach to, to this particular uh, <laughs> to this particular text. Jim so, was um, talking about you. Uh, yeah prophetically yeah um so i mean it feels to me that you have got kind of a 62 week period which comes to an end and then after it in verse 26 um you've got um various things which happen so after the 62 weeks an anointed one presumably has to arrive and then be cut off and then the sanctuary has to end and so you've got i guess about 40 years separating those events um and then i mean i would say then you've actually got far longer than um 70 years that you've got this time sort of um its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war so i would say that there's just an untimed period looking forward to uh, a later end I mean, um, 
we've met various ends throughout the book of Daniel, haven't we? We've had the end of kind of, I don't know, Daniel's initial period of training and the, the end of the Colossus in chapter two. We had a, an end in chapter eight. And so I think there's probably some flexibility with um, ends going on. Um, one reason I, I like the idea that 27 is um, this kind of false messianic figure who arrives it's just that there's a flow then to the um to the prophecy in that rather than kind of just jumping backwards 40 years from sort of AD 70 back to the time of Jesus you've got this flow that because the people have rejected their anointed one and rejected the the true messiah um they're set up to kind of uh, embrace this false messiah this sort of shadowy he figure who is going to act in a false messianic way make a, a covenant of some sort and remove sacrifices and, and and that sort of thing and when we're thinking about this we should just be scouring the rest of the book for mm. clues that might help us i mean one of the things that we've already mentioned is the connection between the 62 and the age of darius as he comes to the throne um so that might give us some clue playing out the pattern in miniature or we might think about the time times and half a time, which is half a week um, in terms of years. Or we could maybe think of some of the other details that we have, like the fact that there was a miniature jubilee being played out in the first week of this 10 weeks of years. Does that present a sort of model in miniature for understanding the larger pattern that's taking place without arriving at any answers to those questions, those are the sorts of questions that I'll be asking to try and think about what this might mean. Hmm. Going back to your comments, Jim, I think that um, it's not clear to me, the 70, sorry, is verse 27 talking about the 70th week, but it's been broken off and put in the distant future. It's been put in your eschatological box. Is that how you're reading it? Or is, hmm. is verse 27 just not part of the 70 weeks anymore? Um. I think it's part of the 70, 70 weeks. So, so, I mean, I would personally see us as still in the time frame now of verse 26. So still looking forward to that end and that Jerusalem is still under a period where desolations are decreed. I and I would see the 70th week as, as a yet future reality. Right. So, yeah, and that, again, um, the, to, to insert that kind of gap, between verses 26 and 27 seems again that I'm skeptical about that. That's an awkwardness in the, in, in your interpretation. And I think that too, that the, uh, the introduction of a, uh, yet another character in verse 27, I mean, the, the one who's been introduced so far, most immediately, even if you take 25 as referring to a different character than verse 26, verse 26 is introduced Messiah whom you're taking to be Christ Jesus. And then grammatically, it seems like the natural antecedent of the he in verse 27 would be that same Messiah. Uh, and introducing a, yet another character in there seems gratuitous. Uh, it seems based on your your penchant for bundling up everything and throwing it into a end times box. That's that, that's what I see there. <laughs> Not that I have much. much I'm, so if that's the Messiah, then... You're talking about the formation of a covenant. You're talking about uh, an end to sacrifice 
and desolations, but an end to sacrifice that doesn't involve the destruction of the temple, but an end to sacrifice that involves the fulfillment of, it goes back to verse 24, and it's an end of sacrifice that, uh, because the final atonement has been made and, and all that's been sealed up. One of the questions that any reading of this, particularly one that does not take a literal chronological um, approach to it, will have to answer is why seventy? Why give us seventy weeks? Why not just say some speak of some more indefinite period of time? And then why subdivide it into this seven sixty two and one? Um, however, we interpret it, we need to answer those sorts of questions because something is being revealed in this um, schematization of that period of time, and then the subdivision. I mean, we could see it as the significance of the. Um, it's the importance of the final week. It's the transition week in the same way as we have 49 and 50 are both significant. That moving over to the new stage is in that, um, the movement from the 49 9th to the 50th year for the year of Jubilee. So we can maybe connect it with those Jubilee themes. Maybe the first, the 62 weeks matters because it's what's remaining when you've removed that final transition week and then you've got this miniature jubilee pattern within the larger jubilee pattern of seven times 70. But why those divisions, I think, is one of the questions that we will have to answer. Yeah, I think that your comment, uh, Alistair, about the link with the age of Darius earlier at the end of chapter five, it's not explicit in Daniel, but we know that that's the end of Chaldean, Chaldea, that's the end of the Babylonian dominance. It's, it's, it's the end of the 70 years, which means that that 62-year uh, mark, yeah, there's a, there's a jubilee and Israel's going to return to the land. Um, and we have here after the uh, initial restoration of Jerusalem and then a 62-week period, the coming of the Messiah, a new Darius, a new Cyrus, a new anointed one who's going to release the people and restore them to the land is going to release slaves. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's clearly Jubilee themes in, in the gospel of Luke and elsewhere, but uh, Luke, especially in Luke forward, Jesus announces the Jubilee using the words of, of Isaiah 61 uh, and announces the favorable year of the Lord. He's going to set captives free. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to give the land uh, and back to its rightful owners. So the the numbers seem to me to fit that that theme. Those numbers seem to fit that theme. So splitting it up into a seven sixty two and one, the sixty two I think is uh, does make a, a neat link back to the age of Darius. Another thing we noted, depending on whether we see the um, parson as half of a minor or half of a shekel, it could be either ninety one, the total of the. Um, the weights mentioned in the writing on the wall, or it could be 62 if it's half a shekel. Right. And that feels like a plausible manoeuvre, just because in this chapter, there is almost a, a reinterpretation of units going on. So 70 years have become um, sort of 70 weeks of years. And and so that almost playing around with, with units seems to be a, a live option, doesn't it? I guess one of the big interpretative questions is what is this putting an end to sacrifice and an offering, isn't it? I mean, um, 
my sort of preferred answer, I guess, would be to stress the links between what's going on here and what happens in chapters eight and chapters eleven, and just more generally in 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 the book, we've seen the blasphemy of temple vessels, and we've seen kind of um, God's colossus, as it were, replaced with um, an idolatrous gold colossus, and we've seen sacrifices removed from the temple by a, a, an ungodly um, figure. And I think that's a large part of the impetus for thinking that the first half of verse 27 refers to um, an ungodly activity of some sort. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that point. I think that um, uh, it's it it doesn't fit as neatly with... Um, the, the first part of verse 27, he'll make a firm covenant with the many. And I, I know that there are ways to take, I mean, covenant doesn't necessarily mean a positive pact that's being made. It could be a covenant of to do evil. Uh, but I think that's, and again, the grammatical point I made before that you're, you're introducing a character that uh, in the immediate context, at least doesn't have any, uh, you don't have any precedent for seeing a separate, a separate character doing the what's, what's going on in verse 27. I think one thing that might, if he's not, if he's connected with the um, horn in chapter seven, there is a time, times, and half a time, which would be half a week there. Um, so he might not be a new character. Right. I mean, a, a slight sort of defense I'd raise is that I think in chapter 11, when we get there, we're going to see this sort of thing just happening routinely that. Um, a sentence will just start with and he and you've basically just moved on to the next king in the sequence and um uh and, and let you know it's either that or just say the whole thing refers to one king and I, I don't think almost anyone says says that when it comes to chapter 11 so it feels to me like you, you can get these new characters um introduced in a in a slightly um sort of subtle way in in daniel um but like you say, Peter, I've al- I've already posited two messiahs <laughs> earlier in the prophecy. So why not chuck a third in? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think that um, I, I'll grant that. We'll we'll see we'll see how well that works when we get to chapter eleven. But uh, I'll grant that for the moment, and just say that's uh, saying that's the next king of the sequence is different from saying you've just skipped uh, two thousand years and counting, and now we're in a we're in a different uh, you know we're we just uh, there's a there's a huge and growing uh, gap between verse 26 and 27. Those those seem to me to be two different uh, approaches. And I think also the introducing an eschatological antichrist or anti-God figure depends on reading previous chapters as referring to that, which um, I'm not convinced about. So has this character been introduced previously as an eschatological figure? Um, that That I'm not so sure. How long are the legs of the statue? Of <laughs> How long are the toes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, George Marston has a uh, picture in his book on uh, fundamentalism in American culture of uh, of the statue of Daniel two, uh, and he goes down to his toes, and the toes start with uh, in the first century, but they they're elongated, and they cover the entire church age. Um, uh, out to the end of end of things because it's got to cover the whole seventy week period. You combine the two images and you get a really long toed statue. 
<laughs> right, right. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe with 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 the Lord, you know, one toe is is like a thousand toes, or <laughs> or something. Yes, yes. Maybe I could conclude by, <laughs> conclude by going back to something that we we mentioned earlier. Is the the uh, I think we talked about it in the last episode. The the link uh, the seventy the seventy number repeated at the beginning of the chapter at the end of the chapter. The first part of the chapter, it's the 70 years of Babylonian hegemony that end with Persia's conquest, and then that will end in the release of Israel, and then the 70 weeks. In both cases, we're talking about uh, periods in which Gentiles are dominant. Um, Babylon as a microcosm of the longer period of Gentile dominance that's going to go on at least until the Messiah comes. We're all agreed that verse 26 is talking about Jesus. We can we can unite on that. Um, and at, at least most of the 70-week period, <laughs> we've agreed, uh, is, is uh, encompassed by that period. So um, uh, that, and that makes the, the, general, the more general point that I made in a previous episode about the so-called intertestamental period. I use that language, but I always use it with a bad conscience because I think it's important to see that uh, the period between uh, the establishment of the Babylonian Empire until Jesus comes is a period that's still part of redemptive history, and God is still dealing with Israel. Um, uh, that whole period is still under God's governance. He's a, he's made a particular uh, covenantal arrangement with Israel and the nations during this period, uh, and uh, this chapter in particular is is uh, among others in Daniel. This chapter is covering that entire period and showing that it's all part of God's unfolding plan for Israel and its fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to bless the nations. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.